You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. One in four American adults belongs to an evangelical Christian denomination, making this voting bloc one of the most influential religious groups in the country. In this segment, Bishop T.D. Jakes, senior pastor of the Potter's House, joins the Washington Post to discuss the power of the evangelical vote in the 2020 election. Let's listen. Hi, I'm Sally Quinn, author, journalist, and contributor to the Washington Post. Today, we're going to discuss the evangelical Christians and their vote. We have two great guests today, and our first guest, I'm happy to say, is Bishop T.D. Jakes from the Potter's House in Dallas, Texas. Welcome, Bishop Jakes. Thank you for having me, Sally. I'm great. I just want to remind you that the last time I interviewed you, we were on a tight budget and we didn't have a makeup person. So I had to make you up right before the interview. (laughs) (laughs) And I still have the little makeup thing, which is now in in a in a box with my prized possessions. <laughs> oh, that's so sweet of you. That's so sweet. I, I could have used you today. <laughs> well, you could use a little powder, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway, today, um, one of the, I want to start out by asking you um, about three issues that are forefront in all of our minds: racism, coronavirus, and police brutality. And all of those are affecting the black community more than anybody else in this country. I just want you to find out whether you think that the white Christians are speaking up enough about this issue. I don't know about enough. I don't know that anybody is speaking up enough about it, but I am pleased to see that there is more uh, unification around some of these issues than there has been historically. We've definitely got a long ways to go, and I'm not implying that we're united on the issues as we should be. I think that our country and uh, people of faith in particular have a tendency to be nose blind. That means uh, that they're not affected by what they're accustomed to. Whereas in the black community, we have to be affected by it because we live with it every day. But there's more buy-in now than there has been historically, and that's encouraging. And you're talking about buy-in among the white evangelical Christians? Yes, I am. I'm talking about, uh, if you looked at the people who were protesting, there were as many whites out there as there were blacks, and I'm not sure that they were all Christians, but they were all concerned. We did not see that. Uh, diversity in the 60s that we're seeing today. And uh, that that all by itself is encouraging. I think that white evangelicals are trying to find their voice about this issue. They're a little uncomfortable when they say something. They're afraid of being criticized or saying something wrong. No matter what you say, you're going to be criticized in this polarized society by one side or the other. And uh, and ministers are trying to figure out how, how do they engage the conversation and not lose their constituency. Do you think that some black Christians have given up on white Christians, evangelical Christians? Uh, Yes, I think that the divide between white Christians and black Christians is broader than it's ever been uh, because it's not that we don't agree about faith, but whenever faith becomes too politicized, it's to the detriment of both parties. And I think both sides have been Uh, politicized to a degree that it has created a further gulf that Dr. King described uh, 60 years ago as being uh, 11 o'clock being the most divided hour in the country. I think that that is exacerbated in this current climate where everybody feels so tribalistic. You said 
and have said, you cannot be a good Christian and be silent. And yet there's so many, particularly white evangelical Christians, who have been silent. And as you say, a lot of the white evangelical Christian ministers, and I, I know this from talking to people about this issue, they're afraid to speak up. But I mean, do you, is that really the bottom line for you, that you can't be a good Christian and stay silent? I, th I think there is a mandate. The Spirit, the, the Bible says, Jesus said, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me and has anointed me to preach to the brokenhearted, to bind up the wounds of the brokenhearted. I don't think that you can see someone bleeding and, and walk across on the other side of the street and say that you are Christ-like. Having said that, I do sympathize or empathize with uh, white Christians who have tried to say something and really ended up sticking their foot in the mouth. And behind the scenes, I've called some of them and encouraged them to keep talking. There's going to be criticism. You're not going to get it right at first, but we're having a very difficult conversation that's several hundred years old. And I would rather you break the silence and say something wrong than not say anything at all and act like you don't see the innocent killings of our people that you don't see, that we can't go jogging, that you don't see, that we're not safe in our own homes, that you don't see George Floyd screaming for his dead mother while he dies on the sidewalk. To act oblivious to that uh, is the antithesis to everything that Christ stood for. And so you may struggle to do it, but I think it ought to be done. And when you have these conversations, what do they say to you? A lot of it is fear, and a lot of it is not knowing how, and a lot of it is never addressing it before, and a lot of it is the privilege that Black people have not enjoyed. We cannot, as a Black person, get a GED in this country without understanding how the white community works. But you can get a PhD and not understand how the Black community works. And so that's a luxury that is forcing people to have to study. Uh, during the George Floyd crisis, books on Black history were the fastest selling books in the country because people were having to bone up on something that they didn't know anything about. They didn't know anything about Juneteenth. They didn't know anything about the rioting in Tulsa. They didn't know anything about Rosewood. And those are things that have not been taught in our schools or talked about in non-Black circles. And finally, they are starting to be talked about today. When you talk about uh, the division, um, and particularly the 11 o'clock is the most segregated hour on Sunday, what do you think the difference is between the roles of a Black pastor and a white pastor today? Oh, I think it's quite huge. Uh, we oh, we wow. are expected to do things that, that white pastors are not expected to do because the civil rights movement back in the 60s was born out of the church because the first schools were in our churches. Our churches have to be more than just spiritual institutions. They have to be uh, the hub of the community. They have to be engaged in the public square, being a voice for the voiceless. Uh, they have to be so many more things than what white pastors are accustomed to having to do. We have to be therapists and counselors and a whole lot of other things. And most of our heroic figures down through history have come out of the pulpit, uh, whereas the white community has a wide array 
of heroic figures. But up until President Obama, we never had a president. All we had were pastors, whether you were Reverend Jesse Jackson or 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 Reverend Al Sharpton or whether you were uh, Reverend Frederick Douglass, all the way back to those days, they were always clergy. So the definition of what clergy means to us is somewhat different. I wanted to quickly interject this too. Most of us vote around the issues that we have been taught that are important to our community. We share fidelity with the white evangelicals on conservative ideas and principles, but we don't have the luxury to vote in a myopic way about that because what we don't share is the concern about the digital divide, the lack of housing, the lack of pay opportunities, uh, the criminal justice system, the black on black crime, the blue on black crime, the uh, the pr police brutality are not things that are on the white uh, clergy's radar. And finally, they're starting to get on that radar, but they have not been historically. So we can't vote with a myopic view of just a few issues. We have to look at the totality of the human experience and not just a couple of items. So a lot of what you focus on is economic issues with your congregation. Economic, not 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 really. Economic, education, housing opportunities, uh, digital divide, uh, lifestyle issues, bread and butter issues, issues that affect the well-being of our uh, community and our family and the many single mothers that are fighting for rights who are paid less because they're black and because they're women and they become the breadwinners for our families. We have a lot of problems in our community that we have to deal with, and it's not all economic, uh, it's social. You, I don't care how wealthy you are, if you're driving down the street and blue lights go off behind you, your heart races because you're not sure amongst the many wonderful police officers that we have. <clears throat> I actually pastor uh, uh, the chief of police for the city of Dallas. Lots of police officers go to my church. I know they're great police officers. But the misnomer today is that if you criticize the few that are not doing well and you draw attention to that, then you don't support the blue. Everybody has to choose a side to the chagrin of the other side, when in reality you can support great police officers and still hold other police officers accountable like we do doctors, like we do pilots, like like we do anything else, but in this climate we're in right now, we have lost our ability to reason together and to come to compromise and to understand that saying one thing does not negate the other. How do you feel about the slogans, all lives matter and blue lives matter? <laughs> I, well, let me respond to it like this. When we have breast cancer month, uh, we don't say, you didn't say anything about Alzheimer's. Uh, <laughs> you know, when a, when a house is on fire, you don't complain to the fireman because he didn't stop at every house. You go to the house that's on fire, and right now black and brown houses are on fire, and the statement Black Lives Matter does not mean that white lives do not matter, absolutely does not mean that, but it does mean that these are the lives that are disproportionately on fire, not only by criminal justice, not only by police brutality, but also by the COVID virus. When you say Black Lives Matter, it's not just about brutality, it's about education, it's about opportunities, it's about health uh, uh, issues. It's, it covers a whole gambit of things where we have been demoralized. It's about the high rate of deaths of our women when they have children. Uh, there's so many areas in almost every area. 
it is reinforced that we don't get the same medical care, the same health care, the same education. It does make you ask the question, do we matter? Uh, do you, uh, is there anything that the Black Lives Matter movement is doing that you think is unwise? Are they getting it wrong or right most of the time? First of all, I think that, that this has gone far beyond the, the movement. The organization has turned into a movement. The organization is one thing. The movement is something completely different. The slogan has taken on all over the world until you have people all over the world in Europe and Africa carrying Black Lives Matter signs. That is not all connected to the organization. Uh, and I think what has taken place is that many people have bought into the reality that they want to be a part of history that says Black lives do matter. I appreciate that. I support that. I endorse the overall concept Black lives matter. Uh, in and apart from the organization and its values and what it's trying to do, I think it has taken on a life of its own. However, I don't think that we can win this battle just by protests. At some point, protests have to convert to the change of policies. And I think we're at that point right now. And we have to take, uh, we have to move away and disavow all violence. I think it's a distraction from the overall message that we're trying to make. And we need to take our violence and turn it into votes. And on every level of government, vote for the people who get and understand that we are not willing to live uh, with these abnormalities and uh, these discrepancies uh, in our care, uh, in our safety, in our well-being. Anytime you're not safe in your own home, Breonna Taylor laying in her own bed, anytime you can't go jogging, that's too much to tell us to be quiet about. We cannot be quiet about that knee on that neck. We just cannot be quiet about that. What has um, Donald Trump done right on the Black Lives Matter issue? And what do you think that the role is of a president during a time like this? I don't know what he's done right about the Black Lives Matter issue. I will give credit to the uh, criminal justice strides that have been made. I think those were important strides to have been made, and I think they're a step in the right direction. I hope that the states will follow the federal example because the vast majority of African Americans are not in federal prisons. Uh, so I do tip my hat to that. I do think that the Opportunity Zones was well intended, and I think we have to work harder to make sure that it does what it was intended to do in upgrading the standards of the community. Uh, as far as I know, he has avoided supporting Black Lives Matter in any way, and I wish that were different. But I am no longer looking to the White House to fix this issue. I think that the people on the streets of America, we the people, have to rise up and reshape our country and our world without uh, just waiting for this Messiah-like figure to come in and fix all the problems and ills that exist in America today. You have a foundation and you have a plan. Can you tell us about that? Yes, I started the T.D. Jakes Foundation and I started it because uh, I was concerned about housing. I'm concerned because black, white and brown people often cannot afford to live in the cities that they serve. We clapped for them as first responders during COVID-19. We gave them flowers. Our church went out and fed them. We did all sorts of things that are wonderful to do. But when they can't afford to live in our cities, that's a problem. So the TDJX Foundation is tackling that. 
We're also tackling the digital divide by doing STEAM programs for underserved communities. We expected to have 500 students to enroll and we ended up with 5,000 students enrolling into our program, trying to close the digital divide and expose children. What black children have been exposed to, they have done well whether it's basketball, whether it's music, whether it's preaching, those things they've been exposed to, they have become. They have not been exposed to Wall Street. They have not been exposed to Silicon Valley. They have not been exposed to the possibilities that people like them could have a place at the table. And uh, the TDJX Foundation is committed to working that out. Jobs, homes, housing, and closing the digital divide. You mentioned that you didn't think this was um, in the hands, should be in the hands of the White House anymore. Have you reached out to President Trump at all? I know that you've advised the last three presidents and you've had a very good relationship with them. Do you have a relationship with President Trump? I do. I have never met him. I've absolutely never met him. And I'm not, I'm not, let me be clear, I'm not absolving him of his responsibility. And there's a lot that he could do. And there's a lot that he has said and done that has made it more difficult to move ahead and move forward in the areas of uh, healing some of the disparities that exist in our community. I'm not absolving them from that at all. I'm just steering around the fact that even if we don't get the response that we would like to get from the White House on the level we would like to get it, that still doesn't mean that we can't move forward amongst ourselves. You know, there's a, a, a recent uh, comment that was made by Eric Metaxas, who is a right-wing evangelical, um, he tweeted that Jesus was white, and um, it caused a big stir. And then there were all these portraits of pe people drawing black Jesuses and brown Jesuses and uh, white Jesuses. And I mean, it's, it's quite clear that Jesus probably was not a blue-eyed blonde. Um, and and there have been a lot of columns about that. How does that, I'm sure you've heard this, but what do you think about it? I mean, do you think I, about Jesus and his color? I, I don't think about Jesus in terms of color. I think it's an awfully juvenile statement to make one way or the other. Uh, the the As a Christian, the fact that he died for us and shed his blood for us, he did. it wasn't about his skin, it was about his blood. And secondly, the Bible is very clear about his background and his ethnicity and his uh, Judaistic background is quite clear according to scriptures. And so this American argument where we see everything in black and white and argue back and forth about it means that we do it at the, at the disregard of what the scriptures are very clear about. So when you pray, you don't think of color when you pray to Jesus, you just think of I don't think color matters. I don't think it matters if you have a car wreck who the uh, EMT is. I don't think it matters <laughs> if you're being operated on what the ethnicity of your doctor is. I think it's a very juvenile conversation, but I understand that it comes from a place where religion has been complicit in slavery, it has been complicit in Jim Crow, it has been complicit in white supremacy, and I think that the pushback from the black community where they want to see a black Jesus is really not about Jesus, it's defiance against the fact that, that God only cares about white people. I just wanted to ask you one last question about the coronavirus. How has it affected your church, the people in your congregation? 
And um, you, you've said that it's easier to wear a mask than a ventilator. And yet, yeah. you know, the president who mocks people who wear masks and a, a large group of many white evangelical Christians who don't believe in wearing masks. What is your view on that? Well, let me tell you about somebody as a pastor, regardless of my color, uh, we are the people who bury the people that, that you report about. So they're numbers to you, but they're bodies to us. We are the ones who answer the phone when their families are screaming. This, this virus is real, it's serious, it's dangerous, and I don't think that we have handled it appropriately, and I don't think we take it seriously enough. I had a week in 13 days where I didn't have a day go by that somebody didn't die. One day I had three people in the same day. So when you deal with those families firsthand and those people who can't hold the hands of their mothers or their husbands or their loved ones, and sometimes three and four in a family uh, disproportionately affected black and brown people as well as white people, uh, it's an atrocity for, for uh, us. It's been very, very painful. Uh, it's an atrocity how we handled it. It's been very painful to watch the needless deaths of people when you consider how much attention we pay to 9-11, and rightfully so, with 3,000 people, and yet with 200,000 people dead, we, we tend to want to ignore it or not discuss it or not bring it to the forefront as if it were not a national disaster. We've had more people to die in this country than any other progressive country in the world. Uh, that's reprehensible, it's embarrassing, and it's a disregard for human life. You cannot say that you're an advocate for life in the womb if you don't fight for life after the womb. Bishop Jakes, unfortunately, that's all the time we have. I wish we could go on, but I'm so happy to have you join us today, and I hope you'll Thank come back. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. I did too. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.